Hey there, horror hounds, and welcome to another episode of Concessions. We're continuing our spooky October with another film that scared the living daylights out of me upon its release. Oren Pelly's genre-revitalizing found-footage fright fest, the original paranormal activity from 2007 or 2009, depending on how you define its release date, either when it first rolled out onto the festival scene or when its slightly altered final cut received its wide theatrical release. This movie lays claim to the title of my all-time favorite horror movie-going theater experience. The audiences I was a part of were wigging out harder than I've ever seen people react to a horror film either before or since. I kind of felt like I had finally gotten a taste of what it must have been like to be part of a crowd in hysterics in the 1970s during Exorcist Mania. Apparently, I wasn't alone in that sentiment because the movie did gangbusters business, spawning six sequels so far. You're about to hear me gush about this movie enough, so let's get the housekeeping out of the way. If you enjoy Concessions, please rate and follow the podcast wherever you happen to be listening. Also, please hunt us down online and tell us about how our movie opinions are wrong. I'm on threads at Jared Concessions. Dan is on X at Dan Concedes. And now, please enjoy Dan and I's conversation, where we consider the bigger picture with Oren Pelly's Paranormal Activity. Welcome to Concessions. I'm Jared. And I'm Dan. And today we are going to discuss the horrors of the mid 2000s Southern California housing market. Ooh, no. Too scary for me. Yeah, we're getting a little too real on this pod. Ooh, let's talk about something less scary like paranormal activity. Like demons. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Something that we can kind of, I can sleep at night not having to worry about. Hey, before we talk about our demons, how are we quenching their thirst dan what are you drinking over there what are you what are you giving what are you either fueling or or killing your demons with tonight uh i am once again the visual medium of podcasting this joke lands much better but i'm drinking the deep red blood of my enemies and my victims in a nice red pinot noir from i think it's called moon x is the winery I don't know, whatever Trader Joe's was uh, selling at a price point that I liked at the time. It's a nice, like a uh, little fruity one. Um, personally, you know, a little concessions trivia here. I'm a, I'm a big Pinot guy. Pinot Noirs and Pinot Grigios. Those are usually what I'm going for. That's what we know Dan as. Big Pinot Dan. That's what they call me, the big peenster. Yeah. Yeah, that's why they call him. They always talk about Dan's really big on peen. <laughs> and I'm what are you uh, sipping on? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked, because (laughs) I'm drinking an Incline Cider Company White Peach Hard Cider. It's a 19.2 ounce. It's like a 20 ounce can, but just ever so slightly more grippable. And it's less sweet than I thought it was going to be. I'm I'm actually quite pleasantly surprised that this is a little bit on the dry side for a, a peach cider from like, you know, a massively produced cider company. And uh, this was a good purchase. I'm going to enjoy this throughout the evening here. Yeah, I was actually about to say when she said white peach cider. First off, I already don't have a predilection towards peaches in general because I find them like almost syrupy sweet, especially in their like mimicked forms like a cider or a candy or something like that. So a dry peach cider, I'm uh, 
intrigued. Uh, we don't get sponsored by this again, but that was a great ad. You heard it here first, folks. Dan prefers peen to peach. <laughs> Moving on. What did you read this week, Dan? What did you watch this week? What did you take in? What did you uh, What did you feel uh, fill the coffers of uh, your interest with? Yeah, the voices that have been haunting me this week uh, mostly was work, so I didn't really have too too much that I watched or read. But I did finally finish this book. Where you ever get a book like you're on like a good reading binge, like you're really hammering books, novels, whatever, and then a book just like kind of stops you for a while into a real slog, but you're determined to get through it. Um, and this is one of those examples where I think I've been reading this book on and off since June at this point. Mm. It's uh, late September at time of recording. It's a, a, a little piece of philosophy. It's a Slavoj Žižek's uh, Sublime Object of Ideology, a title in and of itself that makes no sense and is hard to understand. But basically, it's, it's this book from the late 80s, and it's kind of this landmark text that brings a couple of philosophers together, especially brings this French philosopher Jacques Lacan into greater relevance in the English-speaking world. And it's one that, like, a lot of people that like I like and respect, they cite him a lot. So, or this text specifically. So I kind of want to like go back to the source materials. Like everyone's already ta always talking about this book and alluding to the book. So what's in the book itself? And yeah, it is a dense, yeah, very dense philosophical text, really steeped in like Hegel, Kant, Freud, Marx, all that. And uh, it's something that I could only read like 10 pages at a time and <laughs> actually digest it. So it's one that like you also have to be in the mood to like really lock in and focus on. But there's some really uh, fascinating stuff in there. And actually, the the, the author, Slavoj Žižek, he's got some uh, interesting film critique, like little documentaries. Uh, one I recommend is The Pervert's Guide to Cinema. That's a lot of fun. Ooh. You just want a freaky little evening. He Shockingly, in The Pervert's Guide to Civ Cinema, he loves Air Hitchcock because he just thinks yeah. he's a saucy dirty little boy yeah 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 yeah. he wants to hitch that to his cock <laughs> we got pains we got hitchcock jokes oh. this is a real highbrow stuff that you guys are getting to. yeah and there's a huge dick at the center of this movie too that we're going to talk about <laughs> so jared what have uh anything that's uh been getting your uh pino grigio lately Oh, yeah, absolutely. It has not been a, a dry week over here, unlike my cider. Yeah, I, I've been similarly not watching a ton of films, but just doing a lot of reading, just on a huge book binge over the last few weeks. Two, two things I need to really point out, uh, and I'll, I'll try to do it quickly. One is I finally read the novel 2001 A Space Odyssey by Arthur C. Clarke. Mm -hmm. uh, my feelings on the film will be well documented on concessions. But suffice to say, I at this point in my life, I do like the novel many times over more than I like the movie. It is out of I, I would classify it as hard sci-fi, even though the I guess like, you know, the definition of that has sort of moved over to the harder and harder and harder as kind of more sci-fi has become available before its time. It was hard sci-fi even though it, it is quite the adventure film or the adventure novel, unlike the film. And it does this amazing job of being so accessible as it's teaching you these really like lofty concepts around astrophysics and space exploration and you know, our trajectory as human beings. Like obviously the movie does those things as well, but you know, on the page, Arthur, 
Arthur C. Clarke has this amazing ability to make these concepts poetic and easily understood and uh, very quickly in, in very few pages, because the book's only like 251 pages or something like that. Hmm. Uh, he really gets those concepts uh, kind of deep into you so that when, you know, the plot turns happen and stuff, you like really understand why they're, you know, so catastrophic or why they, they mean so much to humanity or, you know, how he subverts some expectations around that. And yeah, even though I've seen the movie several times, reading the book still felt new because it explains a lot more than the movie does. And now I find myself just really, really excited to watch the movie again through these new eyes and find out if I like it more because now I'll kind of have a better understanding of what's going on or if I'll like it less because the novel is so damn poetic where the movie is so damn sterile. So mm -hmm. we'll see. Um, I, I'm, it's kind of a, a coin, coin toss if I'm going to like the movie more or less having now read the novel. But we'll, we'll, we'll go through that and we'll look at that through every angle we possibly can at a later date on a later episode. <laughs> uh, maybe more importantly is I read all three of Carrie Fisher's memoirs over like the last five days. Oh, wow. Uh, starting with the, which is, ba which is basically the, the book form of her one woman show, Wishful Drinking, which is basically her autobio on stage. It's expanded upon unabridged in book form. And uh, she reads it herself, the audiobook, of course. Uh, so I, I listen to all three audiobooks rather than having read them, because if I can listen to Carrie Fisher actually, you know, out loud, uh, read these to me, why wouldn't I? Why would I want to read her book in my voice? So uh, yeah, I listened to Wishful Drinking, and then I moved right on to Shockaholic, which um, does a deeper dive into her experience with uh, electroconvulsive therapy, so shock therapy, uh, oh, wow. called. Uh, which uh, apparently helped cure her depression, but also oh. uh, really messed up her memory. So she wrote really the really those first two, uh, Shockaholic and Wishful Drinking, just post shock therapy, when she was trying to hold on tight to some of her dearer memories that she was sort of losing throughout the course of treatment, which had been ongoing at the time. And then uh, finally, I read her third memoir. Uh, the Princess Diarist, which is more to do with her experience as Princess Leia and shooting the original Star Wars movies, coming back f 40 years later for The Force Awakens. I think she wrote it right after The Force Awakens uh, had been made. And then obviously before her death, right after The Last Jedi was made. And um, pretty, pretty spicy stuff. She tells all about her affair with Harrison Ford on the set of Star Wars when he was 35 and she was 19. Oh. And um, she's amazing. She's hilarious. She's just so real, unfiltered. You know, obviously she grew up this life of with this life of utter privilege, having celebrity parents. Um, but then, uh, you know, she does a really good job of just like acknowledging that and breaking through it and really like, really making like some of the struggles she's had in her life just feel really relevant even to me who's whose experience has been completely you know just not anywhere close to what her life has been like anyway i strongly recommend all three of her autobiographies they're fantastic and her performance in the audiobooks is just uproarious it's wonderful and you haven't uh, uh you haven't been forced or well obligated to wear a golden bikini ever 
Not not once. Yeah. Uh, huh. Yeah. No Pez dispensers that look like me. Uh, no life-size sex dolls of me out there that I'm aware of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nothing like that. But, and uh, she, she died way too young. I mean, she wasn't a young, young woman. She was only like 60. And it's just, you know, she lived a lot of life though. She lived, she lived like a hundred years in those 60 years for sure. Yeah. That's uh, I didn't actually know about the, uh, the shock treatment at all. And there's kind of a, a tragedy to the first two. It sounds like where she's trying to like grip on to what memories remain. Cause she's almost trying to put it down for posterity for herself, not even just for the general human record where a lot of memoirs are, are just like, you know, this is a story or this is something that general populace will want to have down for memory. It's an interesting like historical archive that you can go back to a hundred years later where like, this is even more personal where it's like, this is for herself to look back at later where if she didn't write them down, maybe five, six years later, she wouldn't know half or even, yeah, I'm wondering if she like read that stuff five, six years later, if she read those memories and thought like I had, I got nothing on that memory. Yeah. What that must feel like. Yep. Could be. Um, I, I get, I get the distinct feeling even more so though. What you what you say is true, but uh, even more for her daughter, daughter, Billy mm-hmm. Lord. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, the way she talks about her daughter in those books is just freaking amazing. Just adorable. Mm-hmm. And like in the first one, her daughter was like real, real young, like a, you know, a, like an older toddler, like a younger preteen or somewhere in the middle there, you know, just child age. And then, you know, by the, by the more, most recent one, her daughter's like in her early twenties and, um, helps her read some of it. Like her daughter reads some of the diary entries from 1976 that, uh, that Carrie was, was doing while, you know, shooting star Wars. So her, her daughter, who at the time of recording uh, that audiobook was about the age that she was when she was doing Star Wars. Oh, she reads cool. the diaries instead of Carrie reading them. Wow. See, I've always wanted to like, I mean, maybe it just reveals my particular relationship to my parents. Like, I don't think I'd want to read my parents' diary from their like teens to early 20s. I think that'd weird me out. I mean, if your mom was like spending her late teens fucking Harrison Ford, would you want to read it? <laughs> Actually, that's a good point, but not even more for my mom. It's just like, I want to know if Harrison Ford uh, knows what he's doing. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, shame that you probably won't get to find out. No, no. Yeah, it's one of the, it, honestly, I've thought about that a lot in the last like 10, 20 years. That is one of the great tragedies of my life. I'll never know if Harrison Ford is good in bed. I, okay, I would be shocked if he was. If only because he's one of the people in the world that I can think of where it doesn't fucking matter if he is no. or not. Like the just the if there is just a spectrum of like, here's the here's how easy or difficult it is to get laid, and then here's how much effort you put into it. If there is any sort of correlation there, Harrison Ford has to be in just like the absolute like bottom left quadrant <laughs> like in his prime like 35 year old harrison ford you could even harrison ford today probably is no yeah problem. No, no problem ever 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 <laughs> as is evidenced in carrie fisher's memoir um anyway paranormal anyway, but, activity yeah let's let's go into the memoirs of films that mean a lot to you from your past i think one of them is called paranormal activity perhaps 
yeah, there there was a time when this movie meant a heck of a lot to me. And now it's, uh, I haven't had shock therapy, but now the memory of my initial viewings of this movie still hold a, you know, very lovely place in my heart. And um, this movie was quite the event when it came out, especially for horror fans like myself, especially ones who had been around the block a few times and, you know, were still just chasing that feeling of being truly terrified of a movie. 2009 was a beautiful, beautiful time to be a horror fan, uh, seeing this in the movie theater. Before I get into that, Paranormal Activity is written by, directed by, edited by, produced by Oren Pelly. Uh, I think he also has the composer credit for composing the you know very low drones that happen whenever the 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 tripod shot happens when the couple are asleep in the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, that couple they are played by Katie Featherston and Mika Slote. I was looking at his name, wanted to say Micah, but it's Mika. Uh, it was probably most notably executive produced by Jason Blum, which started a chain reaction that soon led to movies such as Whiplash and Get Out, because this was really the first like cornerstone Blumhouse production where mm-hmm. he invested a small amount of money into this movie and then pulled out m- many, 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 many times multiplier in revenue. And in, well, you know, net at the revenue. time, at the time, doesn't it, didn't it get the record and it stood for a while of the most profitable film ever made when it comes to like money in money out. It depends on, it depends on if, I looked this up right before we started recording. (laughs) If you're just looking at the original production budget of the movie and then versus the receipts and what multiplier it brought back, it is is still the most profitable motion picture of all time. If you factor in the post-production work that went into it after Steven Spielberg bought, bought it and then DreamWorks slash Paramount money went into uh, reshooting the final scene. And then you you add like the marketing budget into it, all of those things combined versus the theatrical gross, uh, then it's number two behind, can you guess? Number two behind what, Blair Witch? Yeah, Blair Witch. Oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, cause this movie and Blair Witch, Blair Witch cost more money to make than Paranormal Activity did. Uh, but the marketing budget wasn't quite as high. It didn't have that whole, like, you know, they didn't reshoot or, or re-edit anything, like, after it was bought at festival. And uh, it made more money. Like, Paranormal Activity just barely missed the $200 million mark uh, theatrically, where Blair Witch made, like, $240 million. See, that's interesting. I didn't know that um, that last scene was essentially not tacked on, but it was... It was, I would say, it, tacked on tacked on uh, by people with much more resources because that that did even now that you mention it like it did almost feel like it was coming from a different movie all of a sudden the firepower and the techniques that they could use because and oh well spoilers i mean we're putting spoilers in the description and all of our uh episodes have spoilers in them but when yeah like when his body flies at the camera i'm like damn that was like for such a lo-fi film that was quite a cinematic trick they pulled right there no, yeah, they did not. The the entirety of the movie up to that point you're describing cost somewhere between ten and fifteen million dollars to make, 
or excuse me, ten to fifteen thousand dollars. Thousand, big difference there. Thousand, <laughs> no, 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 no. This is not a fifteen million dollar movie. Uh, it may, it, it was literally uh, like you couldn't have a lower budget and actually make a feature film. Yeah, you know, ten thousand, twelve thousand, fifteen thousand, depending on kind of what you factor into that budget. That last thirty seconds of the movie cost three hundred and fifty thousand dollars. No today. way! Wow. Yeah. And what happened, and here's here's where the trivia begins and like the lore of this movie really begins, is this movie was shot in like September, October of 2006, just like it says in the movie. And it was, it went to, you know, it hit the festival circuit, Fantasia, like all the horror festivals in 2007 made a gigantic splash. Didn't even like go to Sundance or TIFF or Tribeca or, or anything like that. It made such a big splash on the this kind of like independent horror festival circuit that it, a DVD screener of it got into Steven Spielberg's hands. Mm. He watched it. It properly freaked him the fuck out. Um, he says, now, I, I don't know if this is just genius marketing or he's just a boomer or both. But he said that he was so freaked out after the movie ended, he tried to leave his bedroom door and he couldn't open his bedroom door. Oh no. And he couldn't, he literally couldn't escape the movie. He takes the DVD out, pushes it back in, he wraps it in a bunch of garbage bags and like throws it away. <laughs> uh, and then immediately, like the next day calls in and offers like to buy it for a huge sum of money. Right. Which he yeah, did. Well, that, that sounds um, a little zhuzhed up to me, but Hey, why right. Not? Right. Which, which he did before uh, ultimately reselling it to Paramount uh, mm. foolishly. And, uh, the only thing, the only thing is like he, he, as he said, he wanted to throw in, you know, some money to reshoot the ending. Um, he said because he thought it would play better for audiences. The real reason is the ending is not an ending. It's you know, it's a lead into potential sequels where the original yeah. ending is quite final. Um, ha- have you seen the original ending? Because it's no, way fucking um, better. Well, should we should we say that for a bit later? Yeah, yeah. Let's save it for yeah. a bit later because uh, uh, that is actually a pretty good indication of why this movie's impact, I think, has lessened over the years. But anyway, I'll I'll talk all about my previous exposure to this movie. You can tell I'm pretty jazzed up about it. Dan, what was yours? Yeah. Um. So, yeah, this was if you guys can't tell, this was Jared's pick this week. He's uh, very enthusiastic about it, which is a lot of fun. Um, I am not as enthusiastic about it, so we're probably going to have a a genuine concessions going on here. But as I've mentioned in previous episodes before, probably until about 2016 ish, I just was not into horror. That was a genre I completely stayed away from, uh, from (laughs) and signs was one of those movies that I watched as a kid. I'm like, no, I just don't like what, how this makes me feel. I don't want to do this anymore. So all of the mid two thousands, early 2010s, big temple horror movies were just going right by me just did not care about them was not interested in them so my only real interaction with paranormal activity was basically through my friends and basically through people who saw it and they're all like kind of giggling and ribbing each other about like oh you know like uh matt like you know screamed and like squeaked a couple <laughs> times during the movie and like they would tease them all for it and stuff like that and then they'd tease me because like i was too soft to even go see it with everyone but it was, and then it was one of those movies where, like, you know, it, it landed so hard, and there were so many, like, it immediately started spawning sequels, started spawning found footage horror that was trying to recapture that lightning 
that it quickly what was originally a you know fresh take on the horror genre very quickly became stale and kind of rote yeah. and so my my experience with it is through a lot of the lesser remakes through a lot of the spoofs through a lot of the like you know cultural uh, discussions around it and stuff like that so by the time i got into paranormal activity which i only watched it for the first time what about a week ago now for this podcast it's like i kind of knew its tricks yeah and so when i watched it i was more i was i was really impressed with all the night scenes like and the things that they could pull off and the uh the ingenuity of how you can you know scare people on such a low budget and with a static camera just pointing at a uh, at two people sleeping um but it didn't get me on the level of when you've even seen like ads for the movie and stuff of like you know people in the theaters that they were shooting live and they're like absolutely losing their mind it, it just didn't quite get me there and then on top of it and we'll get into it in, in on the others uh, a little bit later that like you know the story is kind of it falls into a lot of like cheap horror tropes but like Ultimately, I don't think this movie is about a deep and intricate thematic meditation on anything. It's just like, we're just going to scare the pants off you. We just got to set up this stuff during the daytime to to contextualize things. So when the nighttime scenes come, like, you're extra scared. And, like, that's fine. That's 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 a great way to make a horror film. Um, but it just, its mileage uh, is much lower for me personally. Sorry, everyone. I guess I didn't yeah. much care for paranormal activity. Um, <laughs> but uh, Jared, you seem to have a thought or two or an experience or two with paranormal activity in your life. How about you uh, <laughs> run through real quick uh, your relationship with this film, the franchise in general? Yeah, it, it'll be important to me to really set the stage of like how big of an impact this movie had on me and many others when it first came out. So we can really highlight the extreme diminishing returns that it has had over the last gosh uh 16 years since it first came on the scene so i saw this movie in the sort of between state after all the festival stuff after it had been acquired after it had been zhuzhed up a bit but before it was released widely. So when this movie was, when the hype machine was being built for this movie and it was being marketed, they did a very slow rollout. Like they they knew from the reaction that festival audiences had that it was going to have extremely positive word of mouth for being scary and for actually scaring the fucking shit out of audiences. And which is, you know, that's the best thing a horror movie can possibly do to get butts in seats, right? So they showed this movie to a lot of midnight audiences around New York and LA um, in the year before its wide release. So I think I saw it maybe six months before its wide release at a midnight showing in LA with like the director and the actors and everyone there and like a real hyped uh, full full audience uh, at one of the big theaters, like the Chinese theater or one of the really big you know historic theaters in LA. And, uh, oh my God, like I've talked about, you know, uh, movies freaking the fuck out of an audience. And I, I talked about how the movie signs had a really engaged audience when I saw it, but there, there is no cinematic experience I've had with a horror film that even comes close to paranormal activity. Hmm. Like the experience I had with early audiences was what people describe, like when they describe the, the exorcist in the seventies, 
that that was the, like the audience like me i was probably freaked out you know it's actually scared like sort of like hiding myself in my seat and stuff but man some of the reactions of the people around me literally screaming like crying begging oh, no. for it to stop oh, like wow one, like during one of the first screenings i went i saw it, like three times over that then during that time period a guy got up from his seat pointed at the screen yelled fuck this shit and like left. <laughs> left that's amazing some girls like were ushering their friend out and their friend was like crying and going why why <laughs> like and then like we after afterwards like people and people like during the last 20 minutes of the movie were like filing out like with that attitude like nope no, nope no 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 thanks just leaving like out of fright <laughs> and then and then like afterwards they're all you know i, I passed them in the lobby and they're still like kind of like trying to Shaking. get their shit trying to get their shit together mm-hmm. and i was like wow man that movie was that movie fucked people up me personally, I was just absolutely energized by that. <laughs> uh, I think I was like 20 when the movie came out, 21. Uh, like 20, yeah, like 20, 20 when I first saw it, 21 when it came out in wide release. And uh, so I was like so excited to go see it. Um, and you probably know this if you li- if you know me or if you've listened to enough of this, I'm from San Diego. Uh, specifically from Carlsbad, California. And the movie has since been uh, re-edited for where the title card says San Diego, California. But when it first came out, it said Carlsbad, California. Oh, wow. September 16th, 2006 or what have you. So I I was like, ooh, I can't wait to go see this in Carlsbad on opening night. So I did that. And oh, it was just so cool. like a fun thing where like the audience all gasps just at the very, very first thing it says in the movie, just Carlsbad, California, Carlsbad. Yeah. September 16, 2006. Um, and is not a huge city either. And um, no, I mean, that'd be like if I saw a movie and it said Naperville, Illinois, not Chicago. I'd be like, oh, hey, exactly. look, it's us. Exactly. And uh, the movie is clearly was actually shot in Carlsbad from like the, uh, the outdoor scenes and stuff that you can see. And yeah, so I, that was a you know perfect little audience to see it with again, and it was the same thing: people crying and screaming, and 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 leaving the theater in droves during the last like twenty minutes when the the scares really ramp up. And uh, the movie d- like does this really delicious thing where it just trains you to be afraid of that night shot, <laughs> like like per- yeah, every time every time it happens, it's like. Oh boy! Here so, we go. Something worse and worse and worse and worse happens, uh, and it it never lets up, right? So it starts to train you to like, oh god, it's daytime again. That shot is over again. The sun's coming out. Fuck yeah! And then the shot happens again, and the whole theater just goes, <gasps> oh, and like, no, and just the energy of every single person doing the same thing, like trying to look down the hallway and trying to see if there's anything there. Like Skinner Rink does this really well, where it's like constantly like begging you to scan the screen to like just look for where the threat is coming from but paranormal activity does that like in a crazy good way and yeah i I had a a, i have a now looking back on it it was like one of the better theatrical experiences of my life seeing a movie Mm. in the theater and uh me personally after i was like pretty rattled by the movie like i wasn't scared of demons or scared of like the dark or anything i actually had like some like trauma response to it where like, a, oh, wow. like sudden sudden noises would actually like make me jump <laughs> for like, I don't know, a week or two after I saw it the first time. And then like, like a good horror fan, I, again, I went and saw it over and over and over again until it was sufficiently demystified. Like I did with signs <laughs> and, uh, 
the movie has never been the same since. Like when it came out on DVD, I watched it and I was like, ah, that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I could totally uh, understand. And uh, we talk about the kind of the same thing on the Skinnerick episode too, where my experience in the theater was way more impactful than my experience of watching it at home in the middle of the afternoon on my TV. Uh, and especially with like no one else around and there's no audience to kind of feed that energy. I could, and I, I even felt that when I was watching paranormal activity where it's just like a random weeknight that I threw it on at like 10 o'clock or something like that. And it was, yeah, it was scary, but it, it almost felt like the difference of like going to a live sporting event versus watching on TV. Like, yeah, you watch on TV, you're going to get the gist of it. It's still impactful and there's still like dramatic moments and it's very fun. But the difference of being there with a lot of people and it's happening right in front of you uh, is just a, a fundamentally different experience. Yeah, 100 percent. And it's, it's the reason why I love live theater, live music, live sports, like any of that stuff is just you know way better than watching it on TV. Like, look, a football game is not a TV show, right? <laughs> Like, I mean, it, like, yeah, of course, like the, the, the live television production and football games is, is marvelous and everything. But, it, it, you know, it wasn't cr- the, the sport wasn't created to be a TV show. Paranormal Activity, the film was not created to be a TV show. Right. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, there's something uh, that I would just in general, like one of the one of the things that I'd love to do with my life is to make sure people continue to appreciate like what um you know the cinematic experience could be with a big hyped crowd and how it's not the same thing as watching a movie at home like uh, every once in a while there's this like a big event type of movie where really that that crowd energy is a is a important ingredient to its success and i I think of like really monumental comedy films as well like borat Mm. i had a very similar experience watching borat in the movie theater where it was like i've never laughed so hard in my life and if i watch it now i'm like yeah this is funny but it's like my stomach doesn't hurt for days after you know like um and uh, you could say the same thing about a lot of really scary horror films event films like you know, watching Avengers Endgame with a crowd of people that just fucking love the MCU, right? And uh, yeah, so I, I would love to get your take on that because you've had the exact opposite experience as me where you've, you, you're underwhelmed by seeing it. I understand mm-hmm. why you'd be underwhelmed. I'm underwhelmed by this movie now. So uh, let's talk about that more. Like, is it reasonable to like create these films that really lose like, a immense amount of their power after like the opening weekend. Uh, so, is that is that a valuable thing in like the the realm of cinema? Is it a good thing? What are your thoughts? I mean, it, you know, if you look back to the the history of cinema, what it would first how it was designed. They were designed as events, like they were uh, they were rolled around the country, sort of like a concert tour, and they'd bring the film reels with them, and and people would show up almost like it's like an opera or a live performance or something like that. So cinema has its uh, roots in the big event tentpole sort of experience and you know that that legacy still lives on now i would say now that we live in the age of streaming i think that is becoming more and more difficult i mean we're still seeing tentpole events but they're more in the space of tentpole driven ips kind of like an end game i would say end game was probably the last like true like monocultural event film that we've seen. And even with like all the other uh, giant IP driven stuff like DC films or even other Marvel films or things like that, like 
the the event films are usually a you know culmination of like seven or eight or nine other films that build up to that. So even you know like the Marvel films that are coming out today aren't what I would consider event films. Um, but you know this is still before streaming. You know Netflix was this mail in order DVD company at the time. Like you couldn't uh, the landscape just looked different. So you could create these sort of uh, event films and especially uh, the style of horror, which I would call it not and i don't mean this in a derogatory way but like a thrill ride horror where the the purpose of the film is they're going to use the techniques of cinema to just elicit a really horrifying reaction in you and i forget who said it or if anyone said it or if this is just like a colloquialism that's out in the air it's that there are three uh genres of film that elicit a physical response out of you you mentioned two of them see if you can guess the third one there's horror porn yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's horror, there's comedy, and there's porn. Uh it's not surprising that like especially in the 2000s, horror and comedy were the two that were real you mentioned Borat and uh Paranormal Activity and then you can look back in, you know, the 70s, 80s, 90s like your Halloweens, your Friday the 13ths, your Screams like yeah, these are films that are good in their own right, but they like I can't imagine what it must have been like to be in the theater watching oh, yeah. these things. Especially, and it makes sense why they became franchises because they were events. I mean, it's almost yeah. like the same as like Call of Duty comes out with a new Call of Duty every year because it's like an event to to play the new one. Where this one, it's like, oh yeah, they made Friday the Thirteenth Eight. Like, is it a great cinematic achievement? Not really, but like that's not what they're going for. They're going for a great popcorn film that every year in October, you and your friends can go out there and just have a great time. And yeah, that's kind of, now that you're mentioning that, now I'm thinking about it, like, I don't know if that ethos really exists in the cinema landscape these days. I mean, there's always, and it's such a flash in the pan where like, I don't know, Netflix or Hulu will come out with an original film. It'll get talked about on Twitter for like a week and a half, and then it'll just kind of wash away and it's nothing. Yeah. Um, But yeah. Yeah, even, like I don't, Bar- even even Barbenheimer, like, yeah, yeah, that was a big event. We talked about that a lot on our first couple of episodes that we published. But but just for perspective, on their opening weekend, Barbie and Oppenheimer combined made approximately two-thirds of what Endgame made its opening weekend as one film. Mm. Uh, it's So yeah, it's like it's not even the same scale. And that's um, the closest thing that we have to like a true, like, a sort of cultural event where people would dress up for it. They would get all in. Well, this is more Barbie, less Oppenheimer, but um, yeah, I'm, that is a bit of a shame. Now I think of it in that way. Like there, yeah, there isn't that like sort of communal experience that we're all having yeah. together anymore in the, the form of the event film where, yeah. like, like I'm saying, like paranormal activity as a film in a box, not really for me. I probably won't go back to it, but I totally understand it as this, uh, like this cultural moment that happened, and that yeah. people like got together and all got like you know communally got in a theater together and experienced something. Just like I would say, you know, a really great concert or yeah. uh, like a playoff, you know, sports game or something like that. Like it, it kind of has that same uh, appeal or same, I don't know what to call it. Like this, like. Because it, it it's so ephemeral, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, that shared experience. It's literally just about the chemistry between people in the audience, really, mm-hmm. just communing with this thing that you know can elicit the same reaction out of all of them at the same time. It's like, yeah, like concerts are and sports events are the best 
example of that where you go, like my favorite thing about going to a, a, a ball game or, or a concert is you go to a place, you sit down or you stand, whatever. And you know that everyone around you is into the same shit that you are. And like, and enjoying that on such a massive scale is like, Oh, I could be friends probably with 90% <laughs> of the people. In yeah, my at least vicinity. relate to them all. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it doesn't happen very often with movies. It seems to have, uh, have the, the lowest barrier for entry seems to be horror even to this day. And uh, I really, really don't think that we've seen the last like event horror film that just comes out of nowhere, like mm-hmm. a Blair Witch, like a Paranormal Activity. Um, it's been a while since we've had one. There probably hasn't been one quite like Paranormal Activity since Paranormal Activity. But I don't think we've seen the last of that. Um, although I will, I will, do you want to hear like a depressing statistic? Oh, or, or just, or just, just benchmark. Okay, you're, you're going to guess without Googling it. Uh, adjusted for inflation, how much money did The Exorcist make domestically, just in the U.S. in its theatrical run? Adjusted for inflation? Yeah. So we like, let's say we're putting it up against the likes of Avengers Endgame and Avatar 2 and movies like that. Oh, right? no, I would put it in the same echelon of like, I bet Paranormal Activity probably outperformed it outright. No, no, no. The Exorcist made $1.6 billion domestically adjusted oh. for inflation. Wow, I was... Yeah, no, no. Way more people went and saw The Exorcist than saw Avengers. Oh, Endgame. okay. So I see what you're or, driving at. It's yeah. Like or audiences or, were going for at the time. Yeah. Or or Spider-Man No Way Home or like, and like The Exorcist. Adjusted for inflation, The Exorcist and Star Wars are sort of in a class of their own. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, <laughs> it's like wild. That like that many people all like went to the theater to have this thing because like you know it, it's been scaring people and making them vomit and stuff. I want that for me. <laughs> uh, I, I just hope that we haven't seen the last paranormal activity or the last exorcist or the last Blair Witch. Yeah, I do have some hope, and there's some optimism in like you know there's a lot of discussion around the current uh, kind of static feel of Hollywood right now, especially we're in the midst of the SAG after strike. And, uh, you know, the, the introduction, I was actually just watching a uh, Wisecrack video about uh, AI and writing for streaming service in particular, where they can essentially reverse engineer a TV show or film that will at least help, uh, assist their bottom line in what they need to do. So it's like the financialization of art or to a point where now it's like not only are they seeking out things that fit that mold, but now they can reverse engineer it and make this stuff that like kind of feels like an artistic expression but it's hollow on the inside um and you know hollywood has gone through this before and the 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 format of cinema has gone through this before and even just art in general has gone through this before there's these lulls where things get really static and that creates this like really unique opportunity to just like break through and make something that just completely uh like bashes the the current paradigm of how films are even understood and like i guess maybe it's the optimist in me that i'm thinking like okay like we're due for that we're we're ready like audiences are so ready for something that isn't just another rehash remake ip driven uh new piece and the barbenheimer phenomenon was close to that i mean barbie of course is an ip driven thing oppenheimer is kind of a story on something that we're already familiar about but i think that uh, is pointing to a direction that audiences are starting to 
get sick of more of the same. And I don't know, I'm, I'm hoping that that makes it ripe for the next exorcist mm-hmm. to come through or even like, you know, like a talk to me it was like a very mini version of that where yeah. it, it did like on a, you know, a reasonably modest budget and it's an original uh, take on a horror uh, on the horror genre that, you know, made a splash. Now it probably made a splash with just people that spend too much time on film Twitter for the most part, but it, it, it feels like, the ball is starting to move in the direction for what I hope is a really interesting new era of film. Yeah, I hope so too. And I think, I think I agree with all of the sort of ground rules you may have laid out to like why we might be heading towards that. And just that, you know, that, that lust for something new and innovative and not, not just the IP or not just the characters that you're comfortable with going to see. I d- part of me is a little cynical and thinks that the next really big splashy thing, at least in horror will probably be like along similar lines as paranormal activity, where not reinventing the wheel in, in terms of content, but actually just doing a very comfortably well-worn popular trope in a new and exciting way. Right. Well, Cause paranormal activity is like, hardly different than the exorcist or the amityville horror or many other haunted house films it's just unique in its execution right yeah but i mean was the exorcist a brand new story at the time like demon possessions like that's not particularly innovative as a whole subgenre at the time yeah probably not like i can't think off the top of my head of like real mainstream like films that deal with that topic that that were anywhere near as influential like prior to it but uh, that that doesn't mean they don't exist i'm sure they did and obviously the fears of demon possession go back far further (laughs) than than cinema does of course um but yeah like tapping into something that is like pretty familiar to everyone like the haunted house trope tapping into something that is very familiar to a lot of people like that moment when you first move in with your partner and you start to like really get a feel for who they are long term those are scary things that people will continue to find scary. And I think mm-hmm. that someone will probably take, you know, a well-worn popular trope with a very relatable subtext or subtopic and put it together in a fun way that gets a whole bunch of people to go out. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to the day and I'm going to continue to evangelize the power of that by talking about my experience with this movie, movies like Borat with movies like Avengers Endgame, and, I really hope we're, we're, we haven't seen the last of that kind of monoculture event at the movie theater. Yeah. But having I mean, said that, <laughs> watching Paranormal Activity now at home, like on streaming or and uh, it, it's it, it's average now. It really it really is. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, a lot of horror, even good horror, like uh, like using The Exorcist, for example, it's similar to comedy, actually. It may be porn. I don't know. I'm not an aficionado on uh, vintage porn. Um, it has a tough time aging. So, like, you know, uh, older comedies, the the hit or miss rate for, like, what actually makes you giggle is going to be lowered. Whereas I, I'm already starting to feel that with my age. I'm 30 as of date of recording where I'm starting to realize, like, oh, you know, I remember laughing my ass off to, like, The Water Boy or Anchorman <laughs> or... Or, uh, you know, things of that ilk. And, you know, I wonder if someone born like in 2006 or something would go back and think that's funny. And if they don't, I would kind of get it. Um, and that's the same with horror where like I would go back and watch The Exorcist. I remember the first time I watched it, like I wasn't viscerally scared of it at all. 
um, because, you know, people had been drawing from The Exorcist by the time I'd seen it for like 40, 50 years at that point. Yeah. Uh, so it was stuff that I was kind of already prepared for. So it, it aged well for me only because it was in uh, a really compelling drama similar to Rosemary's Baby. But the, yeah, like the, the visceral, like guttural shocks and stuff like that uh, weren't what was keeping me there. Where paranormal activity completely relies on you feeling that visceral shock, but it's already kind of aged out of me uh, feeling that. Uh, I don't know, Jared, if you feel the same way about stuff that like was from before you're born or from a different time where maybe your sensibility doesn't line up with what scares people at that time compared to you. Or, yeah, just a general question of, like, what makes horror age well for you? I, I don't think uh, I don't think it's just time. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there are horror movies that have aged much better for me than others. Uh, like you, The Exorcist doesn't really do it for me. Like, when I saw it as a little kid, and I knew it was supposed to be scary, and so I was scared of it. Um, I don't think that I really understood why it was scary as a little kid. I just like felt scared by it because there was like gruesome images and stuff, right? Watching it as like an older teen or like in my early twenties, I just thought it was funny. Yeah. Yeah. No, I um, laughed at a lot of the, uh, yeah. the possession scenes or the exorcism scenes. Yeah. And you know, it, I can see the artistry in that movie. Obviously I can see, like, I think the performances are amazing, uh, particularly from Linda Blair and the man who plays her voice in it. Like that, <laughs> that combination There's something so fucking eerie and uncanny about it. But there are movies that are from the same time period where they still are just like, I, like I'm getting chills mm. thinking about them right now. Um, like for either the same year or at least they were made in the same year, maybe released slightly later. But I think the Texas Chainsaw Massacre has ba basically not aged a day. Yeah, the uh, whole dinner scene like still just gives me the fucking willies. So much of that movie is just still so powerful. And that was from either the same year or like maybe a year later. Mm -hmm. Um also from 1973, uh, we, you haven't seen it yet. I'm excited for us to watch it together and talk about it. Don't Look Now is mm. still fucking terrifying, I think. Maybe to, it, it's not as, maybe not quite as viscerally shocking anymore, but from also from the 70s, you know how much I love Halloween. And I think that movie is so simple and like so almost like plausible in a way that it's still like pretty creepy. And some of the, some of the stuff in that movie still creeps me out, even though doesn't scare me as much as a kid. I don't know why that is though. Like maybe it's um, just has to do with like my own subjective thoughts on what scare me or like what, what gets under my skin and maybe there's no, no making heads or tails of it, but definitely there are movies that are like well, the exorcist contemporaries that still scare me more. Well, we'll set up a Patreon to get you a therapist so you can go ask them about it and then you can come back with results. Yeah. Horror, uh, horror films are my therapist. <laughs> um, but yeah, actually, it's funny that you mentioned, especially Texas Chainsaw and uh, Halloween, because those are both things that really made a big splash, had a huge cultural impact, but were made on a very slight budget with generally unknowns at the time. And that's, you know, that's paranormal activity to a T. So yeah, uh, dive into a little bit of like, you, you, that's what's so impressive about this film to me, even now, even though like I didn't, you know, it didn't quite land for me, but I was always deeply <laughs> impressed with the limited resources they were using. And it's very clear that they were using limited resources, but how much they could get out of them, just like a Texas Chainsaw or Halloween. So were you seeing that at the time? Uh, yeah. How was that oh, yeah. for you as like now that you're looking back at it? 
yeah, I was already very aware of that at the time and, and appreciating it even while I was watching it in those first very visceral viewings, right? I remember keenly that Roger Ebert wrote extensively about how impressed he was at the minimalism in this movie and how, you know, obviously right, we're talking about like now, it doesn't quite strike the same nerve, but at the time people were like extremely terrified of this movie and what amounted to like, a light turning on in the next room, a door just going, a door opening or closing suddenly, uh, you know, an unnatural voice coming out of Katie at the end, her hair uh, flickering because I don't her know. Just her just standing still. Her just standing still watching Mika for, you know, her hours or what That's have what you. That's what got me the most. The first like standing still scene over a long period of time. I'm like, oh no. Yeah. So it's a combination of just good writing and like insight into what people would find scary and doing it simply and just ingenuity. Like, but, but there are some like pretty amazing shots that were just done because Katie is a really good performer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think of when she gets pulled out of bed. Mm, um yeah she just did that really like yeah like there was nothing there was no rig up or anything like that like she could uh she essentially i don't even know how it was it was it was it was sped up she like was like she yeah she was like able to like use her hands in a certain way where you couldn't really see it and she like pushes herself pushes herself out of the bed with her leg just like kind of in like a ballerina pose kind of like sticking straight out yeah and then they pulled her they pull her down down after that they pull her down the hall um, I think with like an actual like line, right? But it's mostly just her perform. Well, both both of them, like both of their performances, and uh, just simple little tricks, like creepy things that we all think are creepy, like our our feet being exposed during mm-hmm. the night. Is there's there's got to be some? It has to be some sort of evolutionary response where we are as a species more comfortable with our feet being. Uh, not being exposed while we're asleep, right? So just mm-hmm. seeing her feet exposed while she's asleep is enough to kind of get us a little bit uneasy. So um, um, yeah, that's another thing. Uh, personally, when I sleep, like there's a bathroom door and a bedroom door in my bedroom, and like both doors have to be closed, even the bathroom yeah. door, because yeah. like and I, and my girlfriend makes fun of me for it, but I'm like, no, I'm just like more comfortable. It's like you're scared. I'm like, no, yeah. I just don't like the door open, but I'm sure yeah. there's more truth to what she's saying that I care to admit. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And when you told me that, I was like, ooh, this movie's for you then because they, they extract <laughs> a lot of good tension out of just making Honestly, you stare at an open door. Just close your door. I don't like yeah. this. Of course, you know, and the, we can get into the gripes when we really get into the brass text of the plot. Like this movie does suffer a little bit from the like the horror trope of characters have to be stupid for the, the horror to happen. And like just, well, just close just close your door. Just just like keep it closed. Yeah. And in, in this one, it's like they have to be a little bit stupid, but also like it, it only works because Mika is so pigheadedly and antagonistic. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, he's kind of he's kind of the antagonist of the movie, even though there's an actual demon trying to <laughs> take his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mika still sort of plays the role of the antagonist because we get to see him. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like there's just a lot. This movie gets a lot of mileage out of just stillness and static. Mm-hmm right stat like just stillness and a static shot and similar similarly to uh skin and ink it's just uh this movie has this penchant for showing you not all of the visual data you quite need to have to be comfortable and just making you stare at that for longer than is what is normally acceptable in a motion picture mm. and uh th- the movie earns that runtime even though it's pretty short it's like 88 minutes long a lot of it 
it is nothing. Similarly to Skinamarink, uh, which is, some would say, all nothing. Uh, but Paranormal Activity definitely does that same thing uh, to a, an effect that general audiences took to quite well. Yeah, that's, you know, comparing the two. And, and they do share that DNA of definitely long takes, still shots. But I think there is like a fundamental difference between the two where the horror of Paranormal Activity is in the breaking of that and when like something quickly jumps or something moves that shouldn't move where Skinamarink's horror kind of just comes from this like they never until like the very end they never really break that pace like there's no real jump out boo jump scare kind of thing I mean there's like one or two maybe and as Skinamarink kind of works with that building dread by not letting go of that slowness where paranormal activities horror comes from when they break that slowness and, and kind of shock you into realizing something or like, yeah, basically the shock, the, the shock of that change of pace where I didn't have the same experience when I'm watching like the night scenes. Yeah. I'm scanning of course, every inch of the screen, but nothing like skin and rink. I'm not like making up things to be scared about and skin and rink. My brain was trying to find things to be scared about or paranormal activity because it kind of had this structure of like daytime. You're fine. Nighttime. Now it's time to be scared. I kind of like sat back and I'm like, okay, what's this horror set piece going to be like? Right. Yeah. Probably going to be really good. And it's going to be a little scarier than last time. Uh, But I'm like sitting back, just waiting for it to come to me where skin and rink, the the way that it horrifies you is you have to come to it yep yeah i I, i'm i'm right there with you and i think you just described exactly why a lot of folks just aren't capable of really jiving with that movie because that is a big ask (laughs) (laughs) like that really is that that skin and rink has i will say that i agree with you up until the point of maybe like with 15 minutes left of the movie where the the horrifying shit starts to happen during the day as well. Yeah, like, when they the, break that rule towards the yeah, end, that was yeah. brilliant. They have trained you so hard to be relieved by the day and to rue the night. <laughs> and um, once the scary shit starts happening in broad daylight, that is a whole other beast. And that's when people started walking out. Uh, oh, when, it was, yeah, yeah. when I was first seeing it, it was like when like his like when Mika's picture was like had the scratch in his face. Or when um, she, uh, Katie's hair just starts to flutter on its own during the day, and or like when she started to be clearly possessed, and that—that's when people were were standing up saying, "Fuck this, make it stop!" <laughs> like, um, and I think that is a pretty—that's almost like a well—that's a pretty well-worn trick that a, that a lot of horror film, good horror films, do well is set up the rules, then break them for maximum effect towards the end of the film. This movie does is really masterfully structured. Um, and that's why it works on a budget. It doesn't need anything too flashy or, or too uh, expensive. But I, I, I want to actually ask you a question because I've actually always thought that one of the best things about this movie uh, are the, the performances. Hmm. Like there's a certain amount of naturalism that is required for found footage to actually be believable. And I've always found that like maybe Katie in particular, but both of them, the performances are like actually pretty remarkably lived in and like their chemistry is pretty spot on. Like we, we talked a lot about chemistry when we talk about romantic films where it's like, where chemistry amounts to like, Oh, I just love both of them and I love their love. And 
you know, we really, we really dive deep on that uh, on our before sunrise episode. But to me, this movie actually captures more like a realistic couples chemistry uh, uh, than I'm used to seeing in movies. I'm wondering if you were like as taken by the performances as I was. Yeah. And I, I agree with you on the fact that like this film hinges on Katie Featherson. Like if she doesn't uh, nail this, then this whole thing doesn't work. Um, where I, I would actually say Mika is a little bit less naturalistic. Um, yeah. But he's playing off her. Like she right. has to be the grounded one that you're kind of, especially by the middle and the end of the film, like you're in her camp. You're seeing this film yeah. essentially through her eyes. And so I think Mika, sometimes he probably goes a bit too far, at least personally for my taste, but he does have to ham it up just a smidge yeah. out of the yeah. nat- the purely naturalistic style just to really create that contrast or that, like, the, the foil character. Mm. But, yeah, um, if, we, if we mentioned it in brief, where it's like this film and Blair Witch both do that really well in the found footage uh, genre where the characters have have to convince you that this genuinely was um, like in the Blair Witch case, it's just like this was a camera that was found. And in the uh, I'm trying to remember, like, does it ever actually describe how in paranormal activity we find this footage? I mean, like the cops find it because there's a dead body that's laying there for a few days. And now Katie's character Uh, is just gone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Fun fact. um, Mika's body was found on my 14th birthday. Wow! Oh, happy birthday! <laughs> he was a, he was a douchebag. It's a good present. Yeah, I got um, fourteen. And he gets to uh, tell the world that he's dead. Uh, to answer your question, I think there's some kind of title card where it's like the San Diego Police Department released this footage or, or something like that. Um, you know, obviously, it seems like it's, yeah, and and obviously it's like central to the movie that like you know Mika is a jerk and wants to film everything and mm-hmm. has the means to buy a big expensive camera and use it for fun and. So things are not fun. Um, but I, I'm trying to remember. I've seen the sequels so many times that I know they talk specifically about it. And I just I just don't recall if they really make it clear in the first one or not. But uh, to, but to like take a step further back, I don't think the market... It wasn't Blair Witch Marketing where like they were literally trying to convince the audience that it was real. That's like happened, like yeah. no, no, no adults thought that Paranormal Activity was real yeah. right, when it came out. But it was still still extra spooky because it gave that appearance. Oh, I was gonna I was gonna go somewhere else with that. Oh, oh, I just wanted to point out uh how actually how some of the scariest parts in this movie are Katie's performance. Oh, so like uh, the one in particular, uh, speaking of Katie's performance, that like it's probably the least there's not a lot happening on the screen or it's not jumping out at you. It's the scene where she goes like catatonic and mm-hmm. she just uh she leaves the bedroom and she goes and yeah. sits on the swing and uh Mika is trying to like snap her her out of it but she is completely shut down where i thought at least in that moment like oh the demon has possessed her and then it got even like arguably worse because it's more true to life that's like no she just like she's actively being traumatized and like she cannot process like a that there's a literal goddamn demon hunting her and b that the person that she's with that you know is supposed to be someone who can you know back her up and support her and protect her is actively making this all worse and eventually yeah she's kind of like spiritually shuts down and becomes this husk of a person like i thought that was some of the scariest stuff in the film yeah totally and 
there's a couple other other parts where it's like well towards the end where she really is just possessed and she's like she's like she's just trying to convince Mika that everything's fine and it's just like that uncanniness where it's like we've gotten to know Katie so well through the movie that we can kind of feel Mika's perspective where oh that's not Katie Ah, yeah. and like her performance is that good where and, and it is you know it's she's not like Reagan and the Exorcist spewing like vomit and stabbing herself and head spinning around she's just like a different person now well, it's That's like scary. the demon is trying to ape her. Like you're get, yeah, you're right. getting the uncanny valley of it all. Right, exactly. But the demon's not good at it, and yeah. I mean, and that's literally just in the performance and in the camera. And I love that. And and just some like smaller things, like just her, uh, her believably being scared throughout the movie. Like there's a moment that I that always really jumps out at me, and it's a small moment, but I forget what exactly is happening. But it's a nighttime scene. It's one of the ones where. Uh, the scary shit is progressing throughout the night and they're actually like walking around the house looking for something maybe in the attic or something and uh, something scary has happened in the bedroom and she's trying to convince Mika to go downstairs and just stay downstairs and she's just like please 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 oh, yeah, and yeah. I'm like ooh that seems too real like it seems like she's actually terrified mm-hmm. and uh, yeah I think that she's she's brilliant and it's kind of a bummer that this is really the only stuff that she's done is this movie and the sequels yeah, I'm a little surprised that she didn't at least get picked up for other horror. Like, you like know, how, minor, she, how is she not a yeah? How is she not a scream queen? Yeah, like minor least. scream queen roles, I suppose. Uh, yeah, you no, know, I don't see her getting all the way up to the level of like Mia Goth or Jenna Ortega these days or something like that. No, at least some kind of a career in that niche. Yeah, maybe it's just that she doesn't want to. Also, I would bet that um, they probably were paid diddly squat as a as a salary for this movie, but maybe they they had like a point or two on the back end and a point or two on the back end of the paranormal activity franchise would be pretty, pretty sweet. Yeah, so maybe I, she I, doesn't have to act anymore. Maybe she yeah, is I, out being an English teacher, you know? Yeah. You know, I actually, now that I think about it, I do recall seeing, uh, you know, produced by Katie Featherston and like, you know, paranormal activity four or something. Oh, cool. Yeah. So that, that makes sense where it's like, yeah, you need me for this movie. That's going to cost 7% of the, of the net or like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> uh whatever it is yeah i I, um, I hope she's doing well because she she really impresses me in this movie but yeah and i was just switching over to miko who like it was kind of <laughs> funny when i was watching the movie and then like i was just reading like commentary on- online um where everyone was like yeah the real like horror is mika's character not so much the demon or then i started doing a little bit of research on the character or on the actual actor which uh it's kind of a fun little piece of trivia too is both the actors' uh, first names are the same as the characters. Like they, they just yeah, yeah. them the same to kind of keep with the naturalism, I would suppose. So Mika, yeah. the real guy, is a uh, he went to like an upstate New York, uh, like fancy private liberal arts college as a philosophy major, and is oh, playing yeah. what's ostensibly like 2008's version of a tech bro. Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. well, a day trader at the time, but now, like, he definitely would be like a, a Silicon Valley startup tech bro at these point or uh, in 2023. Yeah. And so that's why I think, like, crypto guy. Yeah, I think he like oversells how much of a tool this character is because he probably is like, you know, fresh out of liberal arts college, which is with his very like enlightened philosophy degree and has like pure <laughs> disdain for the exact person yeah. that he's playing right now. So I think he does like uh, you know uh, oversell it a little bit, but I could totally understand that uh, that dimension of it. But it, it adds to the whole style of the film that he's making these choices, uh, as I had said earlier, that he 
he's sort of if like a one is perfectly natural and a 10 yeah. is like i don't know nick cage he's at like a three yeah totally which is still like well in the realm of believable naturalism but yeah he uh he has to be the anta- the antagonist and you know you have to understand that katie moving in with him will rile the demon up enough that now is the time that it's going to take her <laughs> okay first off let me ask you this question. Ladies, uh, skip ahead. This is for the fellas in the room. All right. Fellas, if you're a woman, uh, you've been you move in with your woman, you're you're you know, you're you're saving up for a ring, you really want to start a life together, and your woman uh reveals to you after I think four years of dating, that's how long they were together. Uh oh, BTW, uh I've been possessed by demons my entire life, and now that's why things are going bump the night. The demons over here. Fellas, do you stay with her? I say there was a point. There's later a point in the movie where I was writing notes uh, while I was watching it, and there was some like distinct crash or one of the night scenes where it's very clear there's a demon here. I'm like, I'm dumping her ass. I don't care. She's the love of my yeah. life. I am yeah. not getting demoned in my house. Yeah. At any point, Mika could have left. Like we, they have established the the rules of this demon very early on that it's connected <laughs> to Katie. Specifically, not even Mika and his house. Yeah, I mean, I, I would no, no one is worth dying for, literally, right? Which, this sorry, go- babe, I love my wife, I love my kids. I wouldn't literally die to remain staying in the same house yeah, as them. If your family became the devil incarnate and was ready yeah. to bring Satan's kingdom on Earth, like, sorry, sorry, guys. Um, but this right. does go into play into his character and why he becomes the antagonist is he just has so much male hubris about it. Oh, that yeah. He just he thinks he can like I, I almost was waiting for him to say that he was just going to beat up the demon. Like he may as well say, I'm going to yeah. punch this invisible demon in the face. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that and just it, it starts off as just, you know, classic just skepticism and. Uh, you know, like using his big boy logic brain that, you know, this can't possibly be real. I'm going to use my camera to prove it, you know, and then it becomes that it's like that sort of almost distinctly male thing of, ooh, this might actually be dangerous. Let's poke it to the, to just like, this is challenging my manhood. My dick is bigger than this demon's dick. Stay away from my girlfriend now. And, you know? Yeah. And then it's like reading like a corny, like, how to kill a demon 101 book and like doing research online about it as if like if as if also as if katie doesn't hasn't already tried all these things because she's been right. haunted for like 20 years probably at this point right. like and we oh well thank god i'm here to just like do a little bit of research for a week and i can kill a goddamn demon um and then even like when you know the the what the medium character what do we want to call the the older guy like a psychic a medium yeah, they call exorcist. him a, they call him a psychic a psychic yeah. like he, when he goes in the last time he's like i'm getting the fuck out this is a bad idea yeah yeah dr fredericks yeah that, that's yeah. actually another good idea uh, or a good example of just the performance in the movie going a long way mm-hmm. where it's like well the performance and the scenario if he just comes in and we've already established that he kind of knows his stuff. He's confident in like his profession and like he's confident that he knows what he's talking about. And he's very cool and collected, the, even though Mika's being an asshole to him during the first scene. But then he comes in later and he immediately steps in and goes, oh, my God, I can't be here. This is, <laughs> this is really bad. I'm going to leave. Bye. Bye. Yeah. Just like that is like so scary. Like even though it's just 
the writing and the performance that is mm -hmm. scary. I really like that as an example. Yeah, and and it goes to you actually brought this up, and I didn't even think about this. Where it kind of plays into this fear that I mean, anyone has as a relationship gets like more and more intimate, where you're you kind of cross not a point of no return, but a point of where breaking off the relationship will now be more and more difficult, more and more emotionally, yeah. uh, you know, taxing on you. More logistically difficult as well. Logistically difficult all on it, top of it. All yeah. of it. Yeah. Where uh, at least within the text of the film, um, Mika's character either owns or rents this home. First off, a at least a three-bedroom home in fucking Carlsbad. This guy is rich. Yeah. Well, they established that he's rich early on in that he has this big fancy, like actually commercial camera um that is like clearly like a um like a five figure purchase. And he says yeah. that he made twice that, that day. Yeah. I can't wait. Cause you know, this was set in 2006. Like it's a real shame that, uh, Katie had to like, you know, rip his guts out as a demon because the demon of the free market was about to rip his fucking guts out in about two years after all his stocks go belly up. <laughs> Who knows? There's no <laughs> shot that he didn't like, he wasn't make or he was definitely making money off of subprime mortgage loans, that little fucking weasel. <laughs> and I I wish he would have stayed alive for the sequel. And it wasn't anything supernatural and horrifying. It's just him sitting on a corner in downtown San Diego, now begging for money. <laughs> I would have watched that movie. Oh my God. Mika would have been the first victim of the of the procession. <laughs> wow. Yeah, you would have lost that swanky, nice house in Carlsbad. And you know, now in 2020, he'd the probably, beach. yeah, he'd probably be like a uh, hashtag Sigma male grind set, like influencer or something like oh, that. Yeah. He, he would have just lost all of his money that he had put into Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> but it does play into like another like real fear, which, you know, the best horror movies are, they're like kind of sublimating what is an actual, like uh, they're making a, a fantastical version of a very real fear that people have where it's like, you hear the material conditions they live in where Katie is uh, an English student that wants to be a teacher, very modest living um, compared to the lifestyle that Mika seems to be able to afford. And so Mika for better, or for worse is sort of her meal ticket. Like she yeah. lives in what's ostensibly his home, um, I don't know how she's paying for college at the time. Like, it's just not brought up. But it, it seems very clear that she probably would not be able to go after these goals yep. that she's going for financially if it weren't for the resources that her boyfriend had. And, yep. you know, I'm sure you've run into couples like this before where it's it, it seems very clear that, like, whether or not the relationship's working or they're happy, it's like one of them has to stay because the consequences of leaving are like would be devastating to their bank account pretty much. Like they couldn't right. find a way to live without this person, not in an emotional sense, but in a financial yeah. sense. And so you, you do see her like put up with a lot of shit and a lot of him like condescending her, not listening to her. The one in particular I wrote down that's like, God damn it. This guy's such a, like he's a, he's a child. He's a big man child that does not respect his partner that she made it very clear. It's like, do not bring in a Ouija board. This is like going to piss this guy off. Like, just please, please. If you don't, if there's one thing you don't do, oh, sorry. It's, uh, I need to, please, if there's one thing you don't do, do not buy a Ouija board. And oh, just, yeah. what does he do? A little pedantic 
bitch. Oh yeah. God. He brings in a yeah. Ouija board and she's like, I thought I told you not to do this. Like, seriously, you're going to piss this demon off. He's like, oh, you told me not to buy a Ouija board. Oh, <laughs> yeah. oh uh, my God. I borrowed it. Fucking worm. And not only did he do that and he borrowed it, but then he broke it. He fucked it up. He let the <laughs> demon set it on fire and carve shit in it. This is a man child, which oh, yeah. also is the worst. I did. I did appreciate too, which this oh, is yeah. something Katie I will trades up at the end of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Trades up for a little demon, probably treating her better. Uh, yeah, actually. Yeah. This isn't a horror movie. This is a, actually a romance movie. Well, she dumps the, the loser. And finds a well, real love of her life that's been that's been there for her since she was eight well, years old. Listen, listen though, like you you brought up a really good point in that power dynamic that they have <laughs> that does throughout the course of the movie shifts like in yeah. a, a very literal way. And there, there's like a pretty satisfying arc there that like was was entirely intentional. Like we learned so early on that like Mika has this power over her and like. He's, they, they talk early on about like very like in the first five minutes of the movie how he's making all this money and she's a student mm-hmm. like um and just just the fact that he's the one like his inability to not like seize control of every situation is what continues to exacerbate their haunting and by the end she's taking the power back baby <laughs> yeah this is uh you know what let's give it the the firm seal of this is a feminist film yes I think finding her agency. I think the two of us can can confidently oh. put that feminist stamp. Oren Kelly, feminist filmmaker, paranormal activity, feminist opus. Hey, it technically passes the Bechtel test where she, you know, has one of her friends and they're just like talking about shit other than a man. I think they are. Yeah. O- only if only if you don't consider the demon a man. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, she has like uh, there's a uh, one of her. Oh, they're friends. talking about crafts. They're talking about crafts. Yeah, at yeah, some yeah. point. I mean, technically, the man is in the room, too, because he's the one shooting them. Um, right. But actually, it did remind me a little bit of... Have you seen the film Peeping Tom, which is like the first like POV killer fi- or slasher film? Uh, I saw Peeping Tom when I was just speedrunning through all of the classics when I was a teenager, and I haven't seen it since my brain is fully formed. <laughs> but at least like you, you know, like the format of it does yeah, kind of yeah, show yeah. this like male obsession with like voyeurism and being like, you know, the, the whole male gaze of it all and being able to control what's in the frame, what's outside of the frame, how to manipulate people to get the image that you're looking for. And you constantly see him trying to do that, um, yeah. even like, you know, like Razziner all the time and doing with essentially the 2006 version of like, hey, send nudes. Hey, nude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could just like beg begging her to, to have sex on camera. Actually, <laughs> like almost like fitting like some people's definition of rape by like lying that the I camera said that out loud. I was like, Hey, yeah. some States today, what he just did constitutes yeah. rape. Yeah. 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 Totally. Just an utter piece of shit, man. <laughs> and, uh, but I, I do want to say like, this movie is like a great thrill, right? Like you pointed out, like this is one of those movies that's un, it's unconcerned with like a very thorough examination of any thematic material, but it's not that it's absent. Like this movie clearly at its core is about that moment in relationships where the honeymoon is over and you're really, and it's on the nose, but you're, you're getting to know your partner's demons. 
Mm-hmm. Like you know, you can't, you're not, you're no longer at a point where you can really escape them. Like you're living together. You've, you need to accept this person or, or, or move on. Right. Mm-hmm. And the movie is about that and how scary that can be. And it is about that power dynamic in relationships as it relates to, to money and class. Like, I think like there's too much in this movie that points directly at it or says it explicitly for that, not to be, you know, what, Pelly intended to examine. Yeah, an interesting thing that you're you're bringing up there with like the whole uh, power dynamics of it all. And I was reading some like <clears throat> you know discussions on it and and looking at some commentary on. It. And this was a very interesting way of of looking at the demon as a metaphor. And it's the idea of like instead of her saying that she had been haunted since she was eight years old, imagine if a, a more real life situation if she said that she had been abused since she was 18 years old or, or stalked or eight yeah or stalked or yeah just had like her you know her dad's a piece of shit or had a creepy uncle or something like that and you know there are people there are people just like mika's character that will use that as uh kind of to gain more power instead of like being there for her and you know the very difficult uh emotional process of being there for your partner when they want share something so vulnerable like that he decides to use it to i mean in the the demon case to kind of like fuck with her to kind of like he uses it to get a rise out of her and to upset her and to to put him back in control which like you know that's a relationship dynamic that unfortunately does exist as well so seeing the demon as, and i think uh, in these conversations too that i was listening to and you can confirm this or not like that metaphor of the demon as an abusive uh history or traumatic history kind of gets fleshed out a little more when you see more of the family and like i guess her sister also experienced mm-hmm. something similar so this metaphor kind of gets fleshed out a little more yeah oh as boy. the franchise goes on it, it really does and uh i would strongly actually recommend just from like the story perspective for you to watch two and three mm. uh, after that might as well be over um even though the fourth movie is the first actual sequel <laughs> oh really <laughs> the fourth movie is like katie's back and she's ready to kill some more fuck yeah um that's that's not until the fourth movie because they, they do a really good job of uh kind of skirting convention and just not not actually like giving into sequel convention so the second movie is what i think i've, I've heard in the past referred to as an in-between quill interesting um yeah the the paranormal activity two begins about a week or two before the beginning of paranormal activity one and then ends like a day or two after the end of paranormal activity one and it's also taking place at the same time oh um yeah so it's pretty neat the third one's just a prequel. The third one is Katie and her sister as like little kids. And you see everything that she describes in this, in paranormal activity one. And it sheds a lot more light on these questions that you're talking about and actually mm. does expand thematically the way that you're talking about mm. and about generational trauma. Uh, it's a lot of hereditary. Actually. Oh, now that I really think about it, hereditary is a little bit of a fucking ripoff of paranormal. Activity <laughs> Not even a little bit. Hereditary is like a t- total ripoff of paranormal activity three and that probably spoils it a little bit for you but uh holy shit hereditary just fucking stole like 80 percent of its content from paranormal (laughs) activity three um wow i've never thought about that before that's actually a great uh segue into something that i think it's kind of something when when i say like when there are horror movies that you enjoy and they don't quite land for me i think that they fall into i'm going to put into two very broad camps of horror films they're you know, of course, there are things that have elements of both. 
there are things that don't fit into either one, but I'm just setting up a, a, a false dichotomy, essentially. And there are films like Paranormal Activity where it's designed first and foremost is to get that thrill, is to get mm -hmm. uh, just to scare the ever living shit out of you. And then there's uh, another side that's more, I would say, like Rosemary's Baby is probably more on that side where or Hereditary, where, you know, the, the cliche term is the elevated horror. Mm -hmm. But it's yeah. more of a drama or a more art house style film that has a lot of horror elements of it and are genuine, genuinely terrifying, too, but for different reasons. <clears throat> and actually, um, even Skinnamarink versus uh, Paranormal Activity is a good example of the two. So how, why do you think they they seem to converge a lot? Like a lot of films either lean one way or the other. Yeah. And why why do you think? I guess you you can make fun of me here. Then like me who I'm sitting here, you're sitting here with a Friday the Thirteenth T-shirt, and I'm sitting here with an mm. A24 sweater on. Wow, this is exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. Wow, that was totally unintentional, but you nailed it, man. No, yeah, this, this was totally accidental. But, um, yeah, why do you think these two camps kind of sit in opposition? It's kind of interesting that now we're kind yeah. of in the age of the more, you know, drama with horror element the, uh, era. Yeah. Where I would say the 2000s was definitely more of a scare the shit out of you era. Yeah. And, you know, I'm so dialed into the online discourse in the horror community. And there, there are camps. Like, there are certainly people who really don't like Ari Aster movies or Robert Eggers movie or Jordan Peele movies or uh, Julia DeCarnau movies who I, I will, I will, I would love to just make sure this is set in stone. I put her in the exact same category of successful horror auteurs as those, as those, as those three guys. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's just different strokes. Like there's so like horror is such a expansive genre. It's like, it's not even, it's so many different genres like it's it, it isn't at this point it's not really a genre unto itself it's the spice of every other genre mm -hmm. like like to what extent is it a horror movie right and you know some certain people they only like what i would call a pure horror those movies that exist to thrill you to revolt you or to nauseate you or to uh gross you out or to skeeve you out or to make you paranoid like those pure movies that just exist as you know an, an adrenaline button i like those movies a lot uh if they're done right but i think that like there's just it's just like totally different camp like the people that like the elevated horror those are like drama junkies for the most part more than horror junkies i would say and that just that they just have a certain itch that only gets scratched when something is uh, a brilliant, you know, uh, it's the, a thematically resonant character study, but also gives you the spine tingles, right? Mm. I mean, I fucking love that. You know, I love yeah. the, the elevated horror as well, but there is something about kind of turning your analytical brain off and just letting your, you know, let in, letting instinct take hold. And there's a certain serotonin rush that comes from shutting off the analytical brain and just having the you know the the instinctual parts of your brain really fully engaged without you know the mental load bearing you down in other ways
See, that's interesting because I almost have had a like I, I went into horror ass backwards where I started with the stuff like Hereditary or The Witch or, or or things that try and scare you on that sort of dramatic element. And and it's yeah. The, the, and now I'm starting to like become much more amenable to just the scare the pants out of you, like really fun event horrors because I'm, you know, getting older and getting over myself. Um but it's actually quite the opposite what you're saying where you want to turn like, you know, just turn it off and just let the instinct or let something more primal uh, get at you. But it's when the uh, like the emotional or the instinct or the intellectual side actually like can't deal with like you're trying to process what's going on as hard as you can. And you're, you're thinking deeply about it. And the more you think about it, the worse it starts to feel. And that's what really kicks in this like primal fear for me. And I think Skinnamarink is a great example of that. The Witch mm-hmm. is another great example. A Cure, uh, it's a, a Kurosawa film, not a Cure, a Kurosawa. Uh, that's another great example of that. Yeah, this one's uh, a Cure, a Kurosawa. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it's because of like the dramatic elements or the character elements or the thematic elements that are whirling around that I'm considering while I'm watching the movie that the when the horror elements come in, like I'm so the pump is so primed for it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh man. I'm picking up what you're putting down in that regard. I am. Um, that, <laughs> and that's and the, more like traditional slashers do the same thing. Halloween's a great example where I'd say it leads with the visceral thrills. It's almost, I would say um, Halloween's like, you know, I think I've said this with an episode earlier and trying to, I think it was the Barbie episode where it's like a really excellently crafted pop song where it's like, you can listen to it once and it's a three minute fucking hit of dopamine. But if you yeah. like sit there and listen to it over and over and dig into it, there's more and more layers and you start really understanding why it's getting to you. Yeah. 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 I'm with you there, but I also just, I mean, I'll make you watch some Friday the 13th movies at some point. Um, Friday the 13th is like a weird one. Um, and I only bring it up because he pointed out that I'm wearing this shirt. <laughs> I, 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 I just, like Jason's my boy. <laughs> that's really all it is like i like hanging out with my boy and watching him do what he does best sometimes you know <laughs> wait i've told you the story about how i watched friday the 13th right you watched the first friday the 13th i did indeed but i watched it last year on halloween on a rooftop theater overlooking the san diego bay it was a delightful time i was half drunk so the movie was very fun and i'm glad i was oh. half drunk for it Sounds terrible. Um, <laughs> that movie sucks. Like, I, I'm sorry. Um, that is the best movie in the Friday the 13th franchise, objectively speaking, is the first one, and it's my least favorite by far. Oh, wow. Um, it's because the Friday the 13th movies, none of them are good. That one is the least bad. But they, it, it's just like a, a, you know, a perfectly comfortable old shirt where it's like ratty like this one um that <laughs> it just it just feels so good it feels like i'm not even wearing a shirt it's it's amazing um like just watching jason just be jason i just love it so, and like and it's they're dumb they're funny they're they're stupid they make no sense they they are constantly defying their own internal logic from one movie to the next uh you can't actually leave your brain on and enjoy it you just have to laugh and how ridiculous it is and how like creative the kills are and how like jason is just uh you know if he wasn't constantly murdering people he'd he'd be a big old teddy bear yeah it's kind of like that makes me think of what the state of john wick these days 
where you know, yeah. I'm not going oh, into yeah. John Wick for yeah. like intricate thematic <laughs> storytelling about the essence of humanity. I just want to see yeah. Keanu Reeves whoop the oh, ever-loving yeah. fuck out of people. John Wick, besides maybe Art the Clown, is is the greatest slasher villain of the 2010s <laughs> and oh, 20s. Yeah. We got to throw that on the list at some point. All the John Wick movies. It's all four. Of them. Yeah, I, I, I really. I really want to do a thing where we just we do a whole episode of just all of the Friday the 13th Eight. movies. Oh, you're going to have to. Yeah, you're going to have to put that like five months out so I can start prepping. How it many are there right now? Uh, let's see. There's Friday the 13th, Friday the 13th Part 2, Friday the 13th Part 3D, Friday the 13th, the final chapter, Friday the 13th, uh, The New Blood, Friday the 13th, Jason Lives. Friday the 13th part 7. Oh no, Friday the thir- Friday the 13th part 7 is the new blood. I forget what Friday the 13th part 5 is called. Uh Friday the 13th Jason takes Manhattan. There's Jason goes to hell the final Friday. Oh my god. Followed, uh, followed up by Jason X, then there was Freddy versus Jason and then there's Friday the 13th 2009. So there's 12 of them. So this is the things I do for all of you the good people listening is at some point I'm going to watch 12 movies that Jared has said directly to me are not good. No, no, no they're not. I'm going to watch that uh, for like that uh, over good. 2 hours of content so that there, you there, guys can enjoy. It. <laughs> There's various degrees of awesome, oh, but none of them are good and some of them are not awesome at all. And uh there's two movies, neither of which are the final movie that have the word final in the title. So it's so dumb. Where <laughs> actually, I got to pick that too. Where last October, every October, I tried to just ramrod my way through a franchise. Last year was Saw, and I absolutely this year is Friday the Thirteenth. It might be. I absolutely broke my brain on Saw. That was um, a terrible time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those movies. You don't. You're not. You shouldn't watch them one after another, man. That'll hurt your. Brain. I watched them all in like five days. Every, and every single one of them has like a big twist that like negates everything that happened in the previous movie it gets super, and it just super. it happens over and over and over again. oh my god no anyways you know, we're, with that. We're, we're dragging on uh the, whoever's here at this point thank you for listening to us uh share our i don't know niche franchises that we've gone way too deep on um jared if you were gonna double feature uh paranormal activity with some other film what would you double it up with Oh geez, um, I I don't I wouldn't necessarily make this a double feature, but I I will I do want to point out similarities and it's from a similar time frame. I think I I I think the movie I'm about to mention was before Paranormal Activity, but it was a movie that was it's a found footage horror film that the marketing and the the mystique around it was one of the things that made it this big event. And then the movie actually delivered on that promise as a huge thrill ride that spawned sequels or its own little mini franchise. Um, and I had a similar experience seeing it on opening night. Um, Cloverfield. Uh, just uh, uh, Cloverfield uh, came out a year later, 2008. Oh, wow. Well, okay. No, 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 no. So Paranormal Activity came out in the festival circuit in 2007. It actually got its wide release in 2009. Okay. So, so it's kind of a sandwich. It's kind of both. There's something that was going on right there in the like mid to late aughts where just kind of a mysterious marketing driven event found found footage picture was like all the rage and Cloverfield is awesome. And uh, it that's such a fun movie. And uh, again, does the naturalism really well, except in the, in the scope of a big budget 
you know Godzilla movie basically. Yeah. Um. That yeah. That have you seen Cloverfield? I have not seen Cloverfield. Actually, oh, that's it. So I get that one in Ten Cloverfield Lane swapped. Are they related films? I've yeah, seen, Ten I Cloverfield Lane's the second one. Oh, so uh, they are related. Okay. Then there's the Cloverfield Paradox, Paradox? or something yeah. like that. Um, they're they're not they're not they're related. They're not sequels. It's um think of it like um episodes of the twilight zone or ah. there it's an anthology series really that's cool um they they all have to do with like monsters or or outer space or, or something like you know some kind of big creature feature sci-fi type of thing 10 cloverfield lane is not connected um it's a very very different movie but also very good and i've i recommended that at some point i think uh on the podcast but clover the original cloverfield is kind of in a different class and that's a real fun movie and the matt reeves the director has gone on to direct so many other good movies the the new planet of the apes movies the batman batman yeah. let let me in uh, a couple others that i'm forgetting but yeah him and him and jj abrams really fucking kicked ass on cloverfield mm-hmm. and uh yeah really similar hype machine as paranormal activity and um yeah, good, good, good movie. Launched some careers, launched a franchise, and just a lot of fun. Yeah, cool. I mean, I, as October is coming up, I'm building my spooky list. So that might get up to the top of the list at that point. Seems like a, a franchise as someone who is a, uh, I would say, in my sophomore stage as a horror boy, I probably mm-hmm. should start uh, checking those boxes. Uh, what about for, you, Dan? Yeah, for me, I'm I'm picking two uh, as I want to do. And it's, you know, it's our podcast. I could recommend 12 if I fucking felt like it. So you all have to listen. But I'm always. Well, I, I recommended 12 Friday the 13th. <laughs> it's true. Um, so one of them is actually a short film. And it reminds me of. It has a lot of the same bones as Paranormal Activity, at least in the craft, where it's like it's very low budget. It's very. Uh, it's innovative with what it. The tools in a tool belt that it's using to elicit a response. Now, this would I would say, is like the artsy-fartsy equivalent of this. Um, and it's very interesting because this is from 1943, and it's like very much, you know, just a guy at home with his camera. So, you know, these are already Hollywood people, so it's the type of people that have that kind of access at the time. But this is probably one of the earlier examples of like of a total indie, quote-unquote, backyard kind of style film that has a real artistic flair, and it's uh, Meshes of the Afternoon. Have you heard of that one? I've never heard of that. Oh, man. It's from 1943, and it's just, they really play around with um, a lot of tools or a lot of expressions within, like, showing dream logic within the mm. cinematic language that it's one of those things, like I said, it's only uh, 14 minutes, and if you watch it, you are going to see, at like, hundreds of movies that you've seen before have drawn from this. Like David Lynch doesn't exist without this. Christopher Nolan doesn't exist without this. Spielberg doesn't exist without this. Um, Just the, 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 the incredibly wide range of influence that this movie has had is astronomical. And it's just this, this couple that made a film at home one day and just kind of wanted to play around with how to express yourself via the, the visual medium of cinema. But wow. go, or going to, you know, a thrill ride, if I'm sticking on like the thrill ride films and to, to let people know I am a cool guy. I like cool films that are thrilling. I'm I'm relatable, everyone. One of my favorite thrill ride kind of horror films I saw not too long ago, I think I've recommended it earlier, at least we've talked about this at one point, is uh, As Above, So Below. 
Um, mm, yeah, that is another movie that it just clearly sets its rules. It clearly sets the times that you're going to get scared, and it just fucking goes for it. And yeah, for the what their runtime is about 93 minutes. Like you're just in all the way, and it's almost like a video game where it just go level by level by level. And every single time you get to another level, you know they're going to ramp that shit up. So the same yeah. way that like every next night in Paranormal Activity, you're like, this is going to get spookier every time they go down. So it's in the Paris catacombs. Every time you go down to a deeper catacomb, you're like, oh, fuck, yeah, we're even deeper in this shit. Like, the, nice. like whatever is going bump of the night is going to bump a little harder this time. And it is a lot of fun. Oh, man. I, that's not that is twice that you've recommended it now and again i've been i've that movie's been recommended to me by other people that i trust and it's a rare gap in like kind of mainstream popular horror movies that i haven't seen and uh I, I'll, I'll watch that soon and, and i'll let you know what i think and i'm gonna watch meshes of the afternoon like as soon as we leave here because it's a very low lift and it's on youtube yeah um and uh yeah i'll check it out and i, I can't wait to kind of check back on that maybe next week Sweet, sweet, yeah, um, yeah. Feel free to uh, report back. Actually, next week we'll, I'll, I'll make sure he has a full book report ready for me and you, the good people listening to this podcast. Oh, and thank you so much for listening to the podcast for concessions. I'm Jared, and I'm Dan. And please do not move in with anyone that day trades. Oh.